Hello, welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. I hope things are going well this week. I've been busy, and I'm sure that you have too. So let's get right to it. I want to share with you information about an upcoming series of events called Podcasting Towards Social Change, Sound-Based Pedagogy and Scholarship Series, funded by the Illinois State University SAGE Fund and Fell Trust. This series features three events which take place from 3 to 4 p.m. Central Standard Time on February 18th, February 25th, and March 4th. During the first event, participants will join Joy Adams, creator of Dear White ISU, for her talk, Dear White ISU, Using Podcasting as a Tool of Activism. Joy is a 2020 ISU graduate with a BS in Interpersonal Communication and a minor in African American Studies. On February 25th, Ada J. Arma, creator of The Learning Gene, will give her talk, Podcasting Pedagogy. Ada is a professor of philosophy at Mount Royal University. Finally, join Hannah McGregor, creator of Witch Please and Secret Feminist Agenda on March 4th for her talk, Is Podcasting Pedagogy? Rethinking the Teaching Scholarship Divide. Hannah is an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University. If you would like to attend any of the events in this series, sign up at Eventbrite. Just search Podcasting Towards Social Change, Sound-Based Pedagogy, and Scholarship Series. On today's episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, I chat with Dr. Mohamed Yacoub. Once she said that's not true, he kind of started interrupting her. He didn't want her to continue, and then he kind of ended the interview with her. And I thought that was not fair because uh, you were wrong. You said something that is not accurate. You said something that would represent Muslims as like back, uh, backward people, as like um, uh, people that are not tolerant. And now when someone is correcting you, you're ending the interview. You know what I mean? You don't want to hear what is right. You don't want to hear what is correct, what is accurate. Dr. Yacoub is an assistant teaching professor in the writing and rhetoric program in the English department at Florida International University. He graduated with a PhD in composition and applied linguistics from the Indiana University of Pennsylvania in May 2020. His dissertation explores the narratives of multilingual Muslim students in undergraduate required composition courses and investigates how writing program structures that implement integration or separation practices affect the identity of multilingual Muslim students. Dr. Yagub has published in different scholarly journals such as the Journal of Language, Identity, and Education, Studies in Contrastive Grammar, International Journal of Social Science and Humanities Research, and the Qualitative Report. He has teaching experience in China, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and here in the U.S., in Pennsylvania, and now in Miami, Florida, where he lives. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Mohamed Yacoub. 
let's start off with a pretty basic question. Who are you? What's your name, your title and institutional affiliation, and your role there? What do you do? Sure, thank you. My name is Mohammed Yerkoub. I am originally from Egypt. Um, I have my PhD in uh, Applied Linguistics and Composition from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And then I got a uh, Florida International University as a you know teaching assistant professor. So I work there as a teaching assistant professor. Uh, I teach composition courses. I teach uh, ANC 1101, which is basically English 101. I teach also ANC 1102, which is English 202. And I teach um, other courses as well, such as uh, community writing, writing as social action, and uh, and 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 courses like that. Yeah. So I was I was born and raised in Cairo. Uh, I lived some years in Saudi Arabia with my dad. Like my father was working there, and uh, I traveled with him for some years, and then I went back to Cairo again. And then um, after I finished my high school, uh, I went to College of Education um, in a university in Egypt called Ain Shams University. And um, when I finished my BA, my dream was to travel to the States to kind of, you know, pursue some graduate studies. And one day, uh, a friend of mine and myself um, were reading a newspaper and we uh, came across a Fulbright ad, you know, Fulbright mm-hmm. scholarship. It's uh, Yeah. And uh, we, we uh, saw the ad. Um, it, uh, it was a scholarship called uh, FLTA. Foreign language teaching assistant. Okay. So we applied and um, yeah, um, uh, we were among the competitive uh, applicants, you know, and uh, I I was accepted into the uh, scholarship. And back then, that was back in 2012. And they chose the university for me. They chose uh, Missouri State University. Uh, it was a good thing because, like, if they asked me to choose a university, you know, it would be a very tough decision which university should I choose to, uh, you know, um, to teach Arabic. Basically, what you would do is you teach Arabic and in turn you would take some uh, some courses, any four courses you would like, either for credit or audit, you, like you, you, you choose. So um, they told me that I was going to Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, and I was like so happy. That was like my first time to ever hear about uh, Missouri. You know, I never heard about it before, before 2012. Uh, I got the chance to travel to uh, Missouri. I got the chance to see America for the first time in my life. Got the chance to live my dream, you know. Uh, And then... um, yeah, I, I built some very good um, academic relationships with people there. And then when I finished the one-year scholarship, I applied for a master's in, in TESOL. And, um, you know, I went back to Egypt, and then I came back again to the States uh, to study my master's. And then uh, when I finished the master's, I went to China, and I worked as um like an instructor in uh, Liaoning Normal University in China for one year, and then I came back to the States to uh, like to pursue my PhD. So it's kind of an interesting uh, story. 
Yeah, it, yeah. it really is. And uh, a, an interesting weaving international story to unpack. And I'm excited yeah. to get into some of it. So I've right, got a couple of questions. First off, you mentioned you spent some time in Saudi Arabia because your, your dad with his work. Uh, what type of work, industry was your father in? He was a teacher. He was a teacher? So it's in the blood yeah. then. Right. Yes, <laughs> it is in the blood. Yeah, <laughs> he was, uh, you know, teaching Arabic and, um, you know, I, I was young back then. I was like 10 years old, you know, very young. And um, it was me, my mom and, you know, my siblings. We all went with him. And um, it was interesting, you know, Saudi Arabia is not far away from Egypt. It's one of the neighboring countries to Egypt because like there's this is Egypt and then uh, there's the Red Sea and then there's Saudi Arabia. Mm. And I spent some years and then I went back to uh, to Egypt again. So, uh, um, yeah, I uh, I got to learn the some Saudi uh, traditions and cultures. Uh, when some people actually see me in, in um, like in America, they think I'm from Saudi Arabia. And I say, no, no, I'm not from Saudi Arabia. I'm, I'm from Egypt. That's that. That's uh, I guess that's a mistake people make, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Because I, I don't there, want, yeah. I said because there are a lot of Saudi students in, in America. So there there are not a lot of Egyptian students though. <clears throat> Everyone with the name Mohammed, they think he's from Saudi Arabia. So without being too obvious or without being maybe even too trite. I suppose there are some pretty big differences between living in Cairo, Egypt, and in Springfield, Missouri. Um, so how was that adjustment, and how did you, I don't know, I guess, how did you um, take that opportunity to not only live your dream and learn, but turn that into a career? That's, a, that's an excellent question. You know, uh, as I told you, this this was a dream, you know, um, Anyone in, in Egypt, in academia, anyone uh, that has the chance to go to university uh, would love to come to America. I would love to see like the American people, especially if your major is English. My major was English and I you know, wanted to practice the language, wanted to see like the American culture because I, I like I studied American poetry, uh, American literature, you know, and I, I wanted you know, to see that. So it was a big dream. And especially this scholarship was like fully funded. They paid for my flight tickets. They paid for my housing. They paid like for everything. And um, like it was a shock in the beginning because like by I, I arrived August 5th, 2012. And that's summer, you know, and uh, in Cairo, there's a night live, you know, like after midnight, they're like uh, open coffee shops. People are walking in the street, you know, uh, you have a lot of friends. And then I ended up in a, a tiny, not a tiny town, but like relatively small town called Springfield. Uh, I know no one, you know, by six o'clock, almost all shops are closed, you know, and uh, it was kind of like a shock for me. You know, I, I wanted to talk to people. I, I wanted to, you know, make friends and it was really, really tough. And then I would, you know, call friends back home and I say, hey, uh, I feel, um, you know, homesick uh i, I want to come back and they would say hey come on this is your dream you're living your dream how come you want to come back again to egypt i said like this is like this is tough i thought they would put like they would uh, put me in new york or washington with a lot of people or similar life to cairo 
and some friends said, you know, just have some patience, you know, some be patient, you get used to it. And then uh, um, I, I asked if there are any Arabs in, in the city, in, in the town. Um, the secretary in the department told me to go to the Islamic Center. She said, you, you know, you may find some Arab people there. So I said, okay, where is that? I don't know where the Islamic Center is. She said, okay, I'm going to take you tomorrow. So the next day she took me to the Islamic Center and I, you know, got to know like more Arabs, people from Saudi Arabia and uh, people from other countries in, in the Middle East. You know, we made friends and, you know, like uh, bit by bit, step by step, I got used to, to, to you know, living in, in, in the States and the Springfield. A year later, when I came back to Egypt, it was this kind of reverse culture shock. I said, no, like now um, I think I want to go back to uh, to America anyways. So by by then, I had already applied for a master's degree in, in TESOL at the same university, Missouri State University, you know, and then I got accepted and I got a TA um, to teach uh, Arabic, you know, and study my masses. And um, it was really, really interesting. Uh, there, there were big, big differences between, you know, not only life in America versus life in Egypt, but between academics in America and academics in Egypt, between the way you study in America and the way you study in Egypt, you know, the, the way you pass courses in America versus the way you pass courses in Egypt. Yeah. And I would ask, like, I remember asking my professors, like, uh, the same questions that I asked my professors back home. And I, uh, you know, I, you know, I wanted to hear, like, how, you know, both professors would would respond to to my questions. Um, so I, I, I learned a lot. And, and like by the end of the first semester, uh, my professor said, Mohammed, I'm very proud of you. We kept asking a lot of questions. I said, because I wanted to learn. I wanted to know, you know, there were, you know, too many things I wanted to learn about. And my only way was, you know, to ask questions. Yeah. Your dissertation uh, which you did at Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Actually, Mohammed, if you would, there's actually another question I want to ask you that kind of takes us in a different direction. But I'm going to just yeah, ask it. Fine. I'm just going to ask it. I'm going to go for it. So, like, what kind of su- advice or suggestions do you have for international students who come to America and do feel that like isolationism that you felt? I mean, I'm like, perhaps we have an opportunity to shed some light on like, how, how do, how do we cope with those things? Um, which would probably be helpful for a lot of folks as we're in a pandemic and too. Right. Yeah. Well, um, my advice would be the advice that I received from my friends is just to, you know, be patient and to know that the good is coming, you know, uh, and, and to keep learning, you know, to keep learning about the culture. I remember 2012, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was, um, was it the election years? I think it was the election years and I like kept yeah. watching the TV and watching CNN and kept watching the, like the debates between President Obama and Mitt Romney, and I like, it was a great chance to learn about the American democracy. And uh, that was like something that, um, you know, I used my time to kind of invest in, like invest in learning about the the American democracy versus the Egyptian democracy. Um, So my advice is like, be patient, uh, make friends, um, go outside, don't stay home. I mean, not now, I'm I'm not talking about like 
COVID-19 thing. Of course, stay home now. But I mean, when this thing is over, you know, when, um, <laughs> you know, uh, when you're safe, when uh, life is back to normal, get out and get to know people and introduce yourself to, you know, people from other countries and, and, and get to know like new things and learn as, as much. This is a great opportunity because when you go back to your country, people are going to ask you, how's America? How did you find it? Is, is America what we see in the movies? Is America what we hear about in the news? You know, uh, to tell us about the American people, tell us about the language, tell, tell us about the culture. People are going to ask you a, a lot of questions. So it's it's really fun to um, you know learn now about you know these things so that you have answers when you go back to to your country. Excellent. So thank you for for allowing me that brief aside. Um, so oh, let, after you finished your MA, you wound up in Japan, right, for a year. China. 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 Okay, China for a year. Right. How was that experience? And. How did that prepare you to make the next step to come back to the States, to IUP, and pursue your PhD? Sure, yeah. So when I approached, uh, you know, like the end of my master's degree, I was asking myself, what is my next step? What I'm going to do now? I'm, I'm going to complete my master's degree very soon. What should I do now? And I started looking for jobs. And... and um, Missouri State University, the same university that I was studying at, they had this ad of uh, someone, they needed someone to travel to China because they have this joint program. It was a joint program between Missouri State University and Liaoning Normal University. It was like a business program. They wanted someone to teach composition. So I think, well, uh, I would love to travel. I would love to see China. I would love to see the other part of the world, you know. And uh, I applied and I, I, I thought to myself, uh, there is a zero chance because like back then I thought of myself as like a non-native, uh, someone that cannot be uh, competitive if there are like native applicants. And I said, probably there is zero chance, but let me just apply. And uh, to my surprise, they sent me an email, they in, you know invited me for an interview and I was like super happy, super excited. And I think that was... Probably the reason why they hired me is they saw how excited I was. They saw they saw how enthusiastic I was about the opportunity. They saw that I I I really you know wanted the the the, the job. You know I wanted to travel there. I wanted to see new people, new culture. So they um um they gave me the job and um, took my wife and my daughter Jumana. And we traveled to China and uh, we, we enjoyed it. I got to see, you know, Chinese people. I know I saw Chinese people in America, but like, you know, to see them in the country, it was really a great opportunity. Like uh, I saw the, the language, I tried to learn the Chinese. You know, ye yesterday, just yesterday, I was watching some videos from China and like I heard myself speaking some Chinese that I don't understand now. Like I don't understand myself when I was speaking Chinese six years ago. And I was like, wow, I, I was able to speak Chinese. Wow, I, I forgot all of that. <laughs> so, um, and then I, I when, when I saw my colleagues, some of them have PhDs, uh, some of them said, well, Muhammad, this is good, but probably it's better to kind of pursue your PhD and then you'll be able to come back to us. It was kind of, I don't want to say promise, but they said, if you like get your PhD, 
uh, you will have like higher salary, better rank, you know, um, and I, I wanted that. I wanted to be a researcher. I felt like I, I had a voice and I wanted my voice to be heard. I felt like I can write research paper. I felt like I can present in conferences. I felt like PhD is something I wanted. So I applied to PhD programs. I applied to PhD at Indiana University of Pennsylvania and the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And uh, I applied to um, Georgetown University and the University of Florida. Uh, I got two rejection letters, one from uh, Georgetown University and University of Florida, and I got two acceptance letters from IUP, the University of Pennsylvania, and University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. But then uh, I was looking for a TA or a GA, you know, because I, I can't fund myself. I can't pay a lot of money like that's tuition and fees and stuff like that. Uh, so um, uh, it was IUP that offered me the GA, and that's why I, I picked IUP. And it was my first time to ever come to Pennsylvania, but like by then I had never been in in, in Pennsylvania. So I said, okay, well it's time to uh, to kind of encounter a new in, uh, like a new um, what a new journey in, in in my life. Let's see Pennsylvania. Let's go and study. So we went to Pennsylvania and it was great. I lived four years in in Pennsylvania, and um, it was a life changer. I mean, it, it changed my life. The, the theories that I got introduced to, the courses that I took, uh, the, the, the people that I found, you know, they were very passionate people about conferences, about publication. Uh, I found people that were willing to, you know, co-author, to co-present. And um, it, it, was, it was great. It, it changed who, who I am. Yeah. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at TheBigRet. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at TheBigRhetorical at gmail.com. And then uh, if you want me to talk about my dissertation, because Vicky um, asked, I can like tell you how the how how like I decided about the topic for my dissertation. Yeah, yeah let me read the title. Uh, 
integration or separation, exploring experiences of four multilingual Muslim students in differently structured undergraduate required composition courses. It's, kind of uh, long, so, it's a little long, but I like it. And uh, I wonder, yeah, yeah, your your inclination is right. Tell us a little bit about that project, its findings, and how it's impacted you as you've moved from a graduate student into your role as an instructor. Sure. Okay, so the, the, the story of the dissertation was, um, I read an article, it started with an article that I read. It was published in the Journal of Language um, Education and uh, Language Identity and Education. Uh, the, yeah, so the, um, the, the, the paper was published by Dr. Stephanie Vandrick and, um, the title, as far as I remember of her article was no knapsack of invisible privileges for ESL university students. She was actually reflecting upon another paper published by, uh, Piggy McIntosh. She was talking about the invisible privileges of white people in America. Like as, as a white person, you don't have to worry about your race. You don't have to worry about, you know, finding similar people, you know, uh, in your community. You don't have to worry about a lot of stuff. So she wrote a paper about the, um, the, 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 the invisible privileges that ESL, English as a second language students, you know, don't enjoy. Like, Sometimes people uh, ask you, sorry, I, uh, I don't understand what you say. Sorry, can you repeat that? Sometimes when you call on the phone uh, and people find that you are an ESL, they probably uh, don't respond to you or like they don't give you whatever you want. So she was talking about that. And I, I was like, OK, now what if I reflect on these two uh, articles? with a newer one about the invisible privileges that Muslims don't get to enjoy as well, because you, as, as a Muslim person, some people think you're a terrorist or you uh, support terrorism. Uh, you're an Arab, you're a backward person. Um, you don't coexist, you know, and a lot of, uh, some people have a lot of assumptions about Muslims. So I wrote this paper, it was in the summer of 2017, and I sent it to the same journal, and to my surprise, they accepted the paper. I thought they would reject it because I was a student. I did not have a lot of confidence in, in my writing abilities. So they, they said, yeah, we uh, it's a timely paper. You know, it was like Trump uh, in, in the election and, you know, the, uh, the Muslim ban and, and stuff like that. So they accepted the paper with, with minor revisions. I did the revisions. And then my prof one of my professors, she read the, the, the paper and she said, wow, this is good. Why don't you um, make it into a dissertation? Why don't you talk about like Muslim student identity in, 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 in a dissertation? And I said, yeah, this was not in my plan. But uh, yeah, since this is kind of a hot topic, um, people wanted to know more about Muslim students, uh, you know, uh, challenges, their identity and stuff like that. So I started writing about it, about Muslim student identity, and I formed my committee, three professors. And like after I finished this, I faced the problem. One of my committee members, she said that I did not have focus, and talking about Muslims in general is not enough. 
I had to find some connection to composition and, and, and you know, the, the program, like my PhD program. And then I, okay, I said, okay, I went back after multiple sessions with my advisor, thinking about how can we fix this problem. And I was teaching as an instructor, as you said, now I have this perspective as, as an instructor. And um, at that university, we have two, um, two tracks for English 101 and, and 202. One for L1s, for native speakers, if you're an American, if you are an L1, you would take English 101 and 202 with American or L1 peers. If you are an international, uh, you take these courses with international people. And I thought, like, why? Like, I wanted to know the reason. Why, why do you place international with international? This is not like uh, scaffolding uh, courses. This is, this is not a remedy course, you know. This is not an ELI, English Language Institute. Now, this is English 101. This is a requirement. It's a required course. So why do you uh, place international with international and uh, L1 with L1? And uh, it was interesting. I, I started reading about it. I read for Matsuda and, and other authors, other scholars about it. And I read all the assumptions uh, about this uh, kind of philosophy or structure. And then I said, OK, now I can make connection between these two. I can make a connection between um, Muslim students and their identity on one hand and the program structure, either, you know, isolation or integration. On the other hand, I can make connection. And I came up with this idea. I talked to my advisor. He said, yeah, if you can do it, let's do it. So I interviewed for Muslim students, two in the integrated courses and two in the separated courses. Integrated, as I said, like they, they took the course with American classmates, separated, they took the course with only international. And then I wanted to find out how that impacted their identity, like, you know, being with international people versus being with American people. How do you find that uh, uh, influencing your, like, your understanding of yourself as, as, as a Muslim person, your interactions with your classmates, your perceptions uh, of who you are and, and stuff like that. And it was really interesting um, because I found it like some, some of my uh, some of my um, participants said in, in the in the integrated courses, they said it was good not only for them, but for their classmates, for their American classmates, because when they had like uh, class discussions, they talked about their experiences as Muslims. Their classmates would go like, wow, like, I didn't know that, you know, I, hey, I, I didn't know that you're like from Saudi Arabia or from Egypt and I didn't know this about your religion. I thought it was this, but now you're telling me, no, it's not like this. It's like that, you know. So he said it was kind of good, not only for to me, but it was also good for my like classmates. They would understand more about who I am. Uh, so I, I, I said, well, one of my findings is the, the universities or the composition programs, the FYC, first year composition. When they think about these two tracks, isolation or integration, they should not think about it in terms of writing only. They should also think about it in terms of students' identity, in terms of students' self, uh, I'm sorry, uh, sense of belonging, you know. We want, we want students to feel that they belong to their institutions, that they belong to their classes. It's not only a class that they're going to take and pass, uh, and that's it. No, we, we want that to have like um, 
an impact, like a positive, like a good impact on their academics, on their life. Yeah. So it's yeah. it sounds it sounds like a really important project, and I'm I'm glad that um that it, it that you've turned that project into into something much more. I think as I look at your CV, right, I can see how this project has kind of bled into other things that you're doing, specifically one of your current yeah. research projects, which is Voices: Lived Experiences of Minority Students in the USA. And you describe this as an edited volume in which you're collecting narratives of minority students in the USA with the intent to publish. Sure. What I'm doing right now is I'm trying to reach out to potential uh, authors, like people that I know, to see if they are willing to kind of uh, help me and like to uh, write some some chapters. What I'm hoping to do in this is that uh, when I was doing my dissertation, I, I heard a lot of stories from only four participants. I said, wow, what if I give this chance to more Muslim students? I'm, I'm going to end up with a lot of stories, a lot of interesting stories. I'm going to end up with a lot of voices that need to be heard, you know, from, you know, Muslim uh, students, from Muslim women, um, from uh, those who have some challenges in life. I, I want people in academia to hear these voices. So I think it's it's like um, a project that is worth doing. And um, I started this project about a year and a half ago, and I wrote the introduction, and I wrote two chapters myself, and I reached out to some people, and they, you know, they send me drafts of their chapters. And I'm trying to kind of write like a first draft to be able to send it to uh, like to potential publishers to see if, if they're going to accept it or not. Uh, as, as a scholar that is emerging in the field, you know, this is my I just defended my dissertation last March. So this is my first year as, you know, as, as a professor. I still, you know, uh, enough to publish with a big publisher like Rotrich, you know, but I'm, 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 I'm hoping that they will give me, you know, this chance and they will accept, uh, like the, the book to be published with them. And again, the hope behind this is to be able to empower the voices of Muslim uh, students, either males or females. You know, I know there are a lot of, a lot of voices. I've seen some, I lived some myself. Yeah. There is a ton of things that we could talk about from book reviews, publications, conference presentations. You've been a busy guy. You, I, I have to say, you really seem to, based on your CV, have made the most right of this opportunity. But I think perhaps yeah. it's best to be forward thinking about what we discuss. And so when I was looking at some of your forthcoming work, one that really stuck out is something interesting. And now that I've talked to you more and learned that in 2012, you really immersed yourself in the American political system, you have an upcoming article in the Linguistics Journal called Reiterating Anti-Muslim Rhetoric, a Critical Discourse Analysis of Interview Practices in Fox News' Hannity. Uh, right. Definitely going to be a polarizing article. So I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about what your arguments are, what you, what that, uh, what that argument ho hopes to achieve, and just a little bit more generally about about that work. Yeah. So the the, the story, you know, every every article has a story with me. The the story of this article right. started with me watching Fox News. 
you know, I, I watch Fox News. I wanted to get to know like the opposite side, the yeah. people that are not, you know, in, in favor of Muslims or like the Islam in, in as as a religion. So I, I watched Sean Hannity, and I watched him uh, interviewing some Muslim guests, and the way he interviewed them was not like I would say. I don't know how to describe that, but it was not polite. It was not. It was not fair. It was not fair. And I said, wow, well, now I have a chance to kind of do a study and do kind of critical discourse analysis to kind of analyze his uh, interview strategies and techniques and how he would, you know, uh, interview guests. And uh, I went to Fox News website and I, I gathered transcripts from a lot of his, you know, um, uh, show episodes and I, I put them together and I tracked you know, all the interviews that he had with Muslim guests. And then I tried the way he interviewed them, the, the, the questions that he asked, okay? And then, for example, he interviewed someone from Saudi Arabia. Her name was Manal Al-Sharif. She's um, an activist. And um, she was put in jail for some reason. And the way he was talking to her in the beginning was kind of welcoming, but then um with the interview you know going on he started kind of throwing some words here and there to kind of um what i want to say to kind of you know disrupt the image of muslims that american people might have so he went in 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 a bad way i mean in a negative way he he started talking about morality police he said uh, you guys have morality police and then he started giving an example like a normal example he said like if you and your boyfriend are having an ice cream somewhere on the street, the morality police would come and arrest you. And then she said, no, that's not true. Once she said that's not true, he kind of started interrupting her. He didn't want her to continue. And then he kind of ended the interview with her. And I thought that was not fair because uh, you were wrong. You said something that is not accurate. You said something that would represent Muslims as like back, uh, backward people, as like um, uh, people that are not tolerant. And now when someone is correcting you, you're ending the interview. You know what I mean? You don't want to hear what is right. You don't want to hear what is correct, what is accurate. But you want to just kind of reinforce the picture that you about Muslims that you're presenting to your audience. You want your audience he has, by the way, 13 point something listenership. Like he, he has, he's got a lot of people listening to him and watching him in America. And it's so important that the picture that he's delivering about Muslims is, is accurate. But unfortunately, it's not. Uh, another example, um, he interviewed, um, I think it was the chief executive of CARE. CARE, C-A-I-R, stands for Council on American Islamic Relationship. It's an organization in America that kind of uh, that, uh, you know, it, it has activists and people that are, you know, uh, that affect the rights of uh, Muslims in, in the states. So he interviewed this guy and then was, they were talking about something. And all of a sudden he said, what do you think of the conflict between the Palestinians and the Jewish people? How do you place, and I said, well, this is not the topic that I'm here to talk about. 
He said, I'm here to ask, and you're here to answer. And then he said, okay, I don't mind answering that question, but I'm not here to talk about this. I'm not here to talk about the conflict between the Palestinians and the Jewish people. I'm here to talk about this incident that happened in America. They were talking about some incident that I don't remember now. And I, I, I thought to myself again, well, this is not fair. You know what I mean? To like, like now you're... You're having me to ask me about my, you know, my CV, my academics, and then you would ask me a question that is irrelevant, that is not related to what we're talking about. And then one, uh, uh, another one, he um, he went out to an Islamic center and he asked this question to some people. He, he said that they were Muslims. He said, "Do you think the American Constitution should supersede the Islamic Sharia or?" Islamic Sharia law supersede the American Constitution. And then some of them said, well, the Sharia law should supersede the come, you know, before the, 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 the American Constitution. And I'm, I'm telling you that the, 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 this is wrong. I'm, I'm telling you as a Muslim person, I'm not sure the people that he interviewed are Muslims or not. But then he told people, look, this is how Muslims in America think. Look, Muslims think that they should live you know, they should abide by the Sharia alone of the American Constitution. Those people are, you know, he wanted to, like, to reinforce this negative pictures about Muslim. And I said, well, it's time to write an academic paper to analyze, you know, to critically analyze this discourse, to talk about his interview practices and how language comes to play in, 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 in this What's your relationship with Fox News and Hannity now that this article is on its way to publication? Well, uh, my my relationship is I'm I'm still watching it sometimes. I I still wanted to hear the other you know voice. I still wanted to hear the, I would say, what they are saying about Muslims. Probably I would publish something again. I want people to receive the correct picture about Muslims, to hear from Muslims, not about Muslims, to know what Islam is from Muslims, not about Muslims. Because, you know, we were talking about my journey coming from Egypt to America, and I, I told you that like people would ask you, hey, uh, how did you find America? How did you find the people? Is it the America that we see in the movies? Is it the America that we hear about in the news? And I would say, no, it's it's not. Like, what you see in the movies is something, and what you love in America is something else. This is my experience. What you hear about America in the news is something, and what you like the American people are, are something else. And I was trying to kind of uh, bridge between the two cultures, the Arab cultures and the American cultures. I was trying to deliver a correct picture about America and American people. And I would love to do the same with American people. It's like to give them a chance to hear from Muslims, not about Muslims. I don't want you to hear about me. I want you to hear from me. I love that. Put really eloquently to hear from, not about, right? right. Perfect, perfect, perfect summation. Yeah. yeah. What role has poetry played in the development of, of your scholarship and your teaching? Right. Okay. Poetry, because like you saw some uh, publications and conference presentations about poetry. Yeah, I was well, my, wondering my if you were a poet. poet. <laughs> well, 
I can't say that I'm a poet, but I love poetry. I, I did try to write some poetry, uh, especially in Arabic, because I'm a poetry lover. I, I really love poetry in Arabic and um, also in English. Uh, I started when I was young, you know, loving poetry because I found my dad. He loved poetry and I grow up, you know, loving, you know, poetry. And, and then um, when I came to IUP, when I joined IUP, I found Dr. David Hanauer and he's a believer in poetry. And, you know, a lot of his publications are about poetry and the role of poetry can in classes and, you know, in, in teaching and learning and um, information retention and stuff like that. And I said, okay, well, I, you know, there's someone that uh, has similar interests in poetry. So I, I, I took one of his classes and I wrote about poetry and my topic was about the Informa surface information uh, recall in poetry. If I give you a piece of information in a poetic form versus the same piece of information in just prose form, which one are you going to able? To, uh, which one are you going to be able to recall? Uh, you know, faster or like which one is going to retain more? And I found that the, the the information given in a poetic form tend to you know last long in the memory it's interesting because the, a lot of people learn is through poetry like if you want to learn um about a specific subject there are a lot of poems about certain subjects that if you want to learn about it you would memorize the poem and then through memorizing the poem, you would understand a lot of things that you wouldn't understand otherwise, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, poetry in Arabic and in English, they're not identical. They're not the same. There are a lot of, uh, you know, uh, fundamental differences between the Arabic poetry and the English poetry. But still, they do share some um, things in common, some, you know, similarities. So I have two more questions for you. And uh, first question, if you don't want to talk about it, just say that you don't want to talk about it. I wonder if you have any comments or are familiar or follow up on uh, IUP's uh, retrenchment uh, of certain faculty members and how that did not occur, uh, luckily, for many folks. That's a good question. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk about that because I, uh, I I lived four years in Indiana, four years at IUP, and uh, three three of the professors that received the uh, retrenchment uh, letters, uh, they are either people that you know uh, were my professor that taught me or people that I worked with, and I was so sad to hear the news and I, you know kept talking to um, some of them saying sorry i'm sure this is you know uh, going to um, you know eventually you know uh, be resented and you will keep your job and uh, thanks god this is what happened eventually um, at iup a lot of students what my brother is one of them they did something to stop that they sent letters to the president i didn't do that but i heard about students sending letters to the president they, they wrote posts on 
they shared posts on Facebook, on on Twitter. Um, they uh, they wanted that to stop because that was not right. That was that was something wrong that was going to happen. And um, I know COVID nineteen did leave a lot of negative, you know, a lot of impact about, uh, on a lot of institutions and, and faculty. I am not a person, in, you know, con to talk about that, but I am so happy this is over. I am so happy that those professors yeah. get to keep their jobs. Those are great people. IUP English program, I um, mean, English department, has a lot of students and not a lot of professors. It would, it would you know, end up in a big dilemma and big trouble if those professors left. But thanks that they didn't leave and that they are going to keep their jobs. I'm yeah. so glad for them. I'm so happy for them. I, I got to say, you're right. The folks uh, there on the ground made that issue visible and uh, worked to get that change in order and... and Kudos to them and congratulations for sure. I'm glad it didn't happen as well. What are you teaching this semester, f- spring 2021? Okay, for spring 2021, this semester coming up very soon, starting January 11th. It's at, right at on the cusp. <laughs> it seems like tomorrow. Yeah. I'm teaching four courses. I'm teaching ANC 1102, Introduction to Research. I'm teaching uh, community writing. I'm teaching writing as social action, and I'm teaching um, rhetoric between theory and practice. So yeah, two of these courses, I'm going to teach them for the first time, the rhetorical theory or rhetoric between theory and practice and writing as social action. This is the first time I'm gonna teach them. So I'm busy uh, with uh, you know preparing my syllabus, uh, collecting the material, and thinking about my, you know, uh, teaching method and how I will be teaching them. But the other two courses, I already taught them before, so I'm kind of familiar and confident in teaching them again. Excellent. Well, I hope that you have a wonderful semester and that you have uh, that you're back in the class. Are you in the? Are you going to be in Chi- in in Cairo, or are you going to be in in Florida? Well, uh, it, it's gonna. I don't know because the American embassy is still closed in Cairo and I can't get back until I get my visa because my visa expired. I can't renew my visa until the embassy reopens and the embassy is closed and they don't have any, you know, announced date when they will reopen. No one knows. On like I'm following them on Facebook, on their website. They said they don't know when they will be reopening again. So hopefully they will reopen soon so that I can apply for, for my visa. I don't have a citizenship in America. I'm not a citizen yet. Hopefully I will be one day. So uh, I, I have to have a visa to enter the States. Uh, so, so it's going to be an online class now. You know, I asked that question expecting you to say you're staying in Cairo because it's easier or that you already have your plan to come back to the States. And here you are demonstrating another example of all of these green tape, all of these red tapes and all of these hurdles that so many of us are facing as we try to teach 
and, and learn yeah. how to teach right during COVID-19. Muhammad, I will and, be, you will be in my thoughts in that, in that way. I hope that things work out for you and you can get back when you're ready. Thank you. As, as a side point before the election started, I was like in contact with uh, the HR and the immigration departments at my institution and they were not sure about what Trump would do with uh, my like with the H-1B visa because that's the visa that I'm going to apply to. They said uh, he wanted to suspend H-1B visas and that would probably uh, cause a problem for me, probably not be able to get the visa. So I am uh, uh, not sure if I can say this or not, so, but I am glad that Joe Biden won the election. You and at least 80 million other people that voted for him. <laughs> and perhaps many, many more around the world. And that's uh, absolutely I'm, I'm something not, you can say. <laughs> I'm a selfish person. I'm not, I'm, happy. I'm not saying I'm happy because now I can get the visa. No, this is part of it, but I'm happy because I am sure he will be a better president. We will have more inclusive policies in the country. Wait, absolutely. Absolutely. Something to look forward to, at least for the next four years. Thank you so much for chatting with me. This has been an exceptional conversation. And Sorry. if we ever find ourselves in the same space, if they allow us to go to conferences again, I hope we run into each other. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity that you're giving me. I really appreciate that. And I hope to, you know, meet you one day in one of the conferences. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Mohamed Jakub. I enjoyed getting to know him about him and his work. Some cool stuff. In the coming weeks, keep an eye out for information coming out about more ways the Big Rhetorical Podcast plans to highlight the work of graduate students and give back to our scholarly community. And the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival is coming up later this year in August. And here's our theme, misinformation in the classroom and in the community. We're already building a stellar lineup of podcasters for that event. I can't wait. You can find more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. And follow us on Twitter, at The Big Red. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Mm -hmm.